Well, I needed that. That was outstanding to sing that song and to just sense the the spirit of God as you feel the affection for him and the glory that's due his name and some of the heaviness that we feel right now is just appropriate and is real in terms of the Christian experience. Some of the reality of not knowing exactly the whys and wherefores of our experience I think is important to us. We are experiencing things that are causing us to adjust our meeting together and we desire to be together and yet right now we're following a path that is uh, laid before us in terms of social distancing and submission and carefulness and taking a posture of humility and all of these things are very important um, to do as a Christian and to evaluate with scripture. The church has always stood for truth. It's always been triumphant in glory, even when it's dispersed, even when it is isolated, even when it is scattered, and when it is persecuted. The blood of the martyr has always been the seed of the church. When people are tried, when people are oppressed for Christ, the church is rising and is moving and is multiplying and is advancing. And the reality is when Jesus declared to Peter that on his confession that Jesus is the Christ, when Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, what he was promising and declarative statement in force is that just as Christ is authentically the Messiah, he as Messiah and Lord is committed to the progress and triumph of the church for all ages. The church can be oppressed, it can be scattered, it can be put down, it can be uh, on a superficial level, it can be wounded, leaders can be um, maligned, leaders can be killed, um, church body life members can die for the faith. All these things can happen, but the church will move on. The church will succeed. Death will not hold the church because Jesus has conquered death as our Messiah. And so we are confident within our citizenship, within this embassy that is the church, within this witness, within this church citizenship that we are part of, that it is moving forward and that Jesus is Lord and head over it all and Lord over his church. And all of this confidence I want to bring into the setting of Matthew 2 because in Matthew's gospel, and I would invite you to turn there in your Bibles, in Matthew's gospel we have the birth of Christ and with the birth of Christ you have Christ's witness on earth. 
Even as an infant child or a young toddler, his, his witness was drawing fire and drawing tension and drawing an environmental shakeup and drawing oppression and drawing persecution. And I want us to look through the phases of what I see as Christian persecution that we find in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2. Jesus is trailed and followed and pursued and trying to be put down, but he could not be put down. He would not be put down by Herod. Herod is the face and force of persecution, Christian persecution, because he was trying to kill Christ. Christ could not be killed in Herod's timing, would not be killed in Herod's timing. He would not be stopped. God's plan would roll forward no matter what. The church will roll forward no matter what. The church, though it might be persecuted and is persecuted, always has been, it will triumph, it will advance. And we see Christ advancing through phases of persecution. Satan always wants to oppress Christ and he was live in Herod's heart through different phases of persecution. We, we named two of the four last week and this week we're gonna go right into the third and fourth phases of Christian persecution. Christian persecution takes four different forms or stages through Matthew 2, and the first phase that we looked at last week was conspiracy, and just to bring you up into the narrative again, the Magi had come, they had followed the star, they had come to Jerusalem, they had come 500 miles away from modern-day Baghdad, they were the Magi, they were Gentiles, they were exploring who Jesus is and his timing through the witness of God's Shekinah glory star and harmonizing that with the testimony that had been sown in Babylon's culture from the, the exiled um, Israelites from so many years before, 500 years before their witness had been embedded there through Daniel's coming and through his witness and through his friends and colleagues, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the stands and witnesses that were there and the exiles who stayed and intermarried there and and undoubtedly, that was part of what brought about this moment where the Magi then are going door to door, house to house in Jerusalem, shaking things up, saying, where is the Christ? Where is the genuine, ethnically pure king of the Jews? Where is he? Well, word got to Herod. Herod the Great, who was uh, this megalomaniac, this paranoid Um, almost self-appointed, Rome-appointed king of the Jews. He was nervous. He didn't want to be usurped. He was not ethnically pure as a Jew. He was not trusted by the Jews. He was was, uh, nervous and was a killer. And we've been talking about Herod a lot. And so he summoned Uh, the chief priest and the scribes, verse 4, to gather together and they connected the dots with Micah 5.2 to say that this one you're looking for is five miles due south in Bethlehem. That's where he was to be born. And so connecting the dots between the Magi coming, the star's witness, the scripture that had connected uh, the Magi to the star, and then the scripture that was brought forth by the chief priests and scribes, 
was saying that this one was born or to be born in Bethlehem. Then Herod gathers the Magi in. He calls them in in a secret meeting to ascertain the timing of this King of the Jew, Jews, this one who was to come, verse 7, Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. He wanted to know how old this child was now. He wanted to um, put a target strike onto this one called the Messiah so he could be destroyed, so he would not rival Herod in any way. He's ascertaining that, winning the loyalty of the wise men, however many there were, this band that had come from the Far East who would have been a political threat. Herod was able to win this band in loyalty through a false pretense of humility on Herod's part, saying, I want to be a fellow worshiper with you, so please go down to Bethlehem, find out where he is, and I'll follow on and I'll worship right there with you, and we will name him as the true, legitimate king of the Jews. We'll do that together. So the star, Shekinah glory, shows back up. The Magi are overjoyed and rejoicing, verse 10, with great joy because they are directed right to the very doorstep of where Christ was. Mary Joseph had moved from the stable into a house, and Jesus at this time probably was a 10-month-old Um, Perhaps older, a young toddler, but uh, the Magi come, they present their gifts, they honor him as the true king, and they move from loyalty to Herod, right under, out from under that loyalty, right into loyalty with and unto Christ Jesus. And all that really documents the first phase of persecution. The first phase of persecution is what we have experienced, I think, in our country, which is conspiracy. People conspire against Christ, and we sense it, we feel it. We can't always know exactly um, who's talking and what's happening, but people have always hated Christ. Jesus promised in John 15, if they hated me as the master, they're going to hate the servants in, at the end of Galatians and Galatians 6. Paul said, I bear in my body the brand marks of Christ. We as the body of Christ are always being conspired against to take the hits of persecution. This is a reality. Whatever we believe about political agendas or current ideologies or false narratives that are pervasive in our culture that are dividing our country, whatever we believe in terms of those things being direct strikes on Christ, please do not miss the reality that the Bible promises that Christians will be persecuted. We will have direct assaults against Christ. Satan is always the... The mind behind the madness trying to suppress the witness of the Lord Jesus Christ and the church is that witness. And so conspiracy is real and there was conspiring that was going on by Herod in the name of political agenda. Herod was not concerned per se with Christ receiving spiritual glory over him. He was politically threatened and so he wanted to eradicate Christ for politics and power. And so there was conspiring, and I believe it was demonized, whether Herod knew exactly what he was doing and why is the question. And that's part of discerning the moment in our own world. There are agendas and things that people are doing, even things that they think they are doing righteously that are oppressing the church. And 
and causing us to ask questions in terms of uh, what we are to do biblically in the face of this kind of conspiring. Anytime the conspiring agendas cause us to disobey scripture or to ignore scripture or to suppress our ability to speak truth in love to people, that is this conspiring Christian persecution. We need to be able to speak truth about heterosexuality, for instance. We need to be able to speak truth about what God's word says in terms of biblical marriage, for instance. We need to stand firm against evils like abortion in our nation, right? We need to be able to stand for the word of God and stand together as a church in fellowship on truth, These are conspiring agendas that have been oppressive and against Christ and against his glory and against the way that he originated this world to be. So we have to stand firm in a confusing world with the clarity of the word of God, even if people don't know on the face of things that they are directly impacting or assaulting Christ and the church. So that's phase one. And I said before, what threat level are we in? Are we in a a fire danger uh, analogy? Are we green right now? Are we blue? Are we orange? Are we yellow? Are we red? We need to discern these things so we know how to do, not to overreact, not to underreact, and how to discern exactly how to navigate this world. Well, The Magi, um, under this storyline, they worship Christ, and then it brings us to the second phase that we talked about last week, which was coercion. We move from conspiracy to coercion, and it says in verse 13 that the wise men departed, they left, and Joseph was um, intervened upon with a second dream. His first dream had been, it's in uh, Matthew 1, verse 20. And it's the angel of the Lord saying, behold, behold, pay attention. Um, Or the readers are to behold about what the angel said to Joseph as he grabbed Joseph's attention, I should say. This is the grammatical formulation to say Joseph had a dream. Joseph had a dream. He had a dream. He had four dreams. One dream was to say, don't divorce Mary. The rest and remaining dreams uh, where he's hearing directly from an angel, God speaking through this messenger to him while he slept passively, the angel speaking actively to him and helping Joseph navigate persecution. That's what three of the dreams before us are about, when to go, what to do. And this dream was a direct order from the Lord For him to, verse 13, rise, take the child and his mother, flee and flee to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child and destroy him. This is coercion. Herod's coercion. He's coming. He's coming. The angel's telling him he's coming. And the coercion that's Christian persecution is coming from Herod. But because Joseph was spiritually alive, spiritually attuned to what God was speaking to him, he knew what to do in the moment. This could be um, perceived as soft coercion or even hard coercion because he was leaving and fleeing at this time. There are times where Christians need to flee persecution and, and move away from the direct assault of persecution. There are times where you take a stand. I quoted, I think it was Tertullian who said, the blood of the martyr is the seed of the church. I quoted that earlier. There's a time to bleed for Christ 
and to take that stand. There's a time to, as being wise as serpent, harmless as doves, to move away from, out from under the direct assault. And discerning that is um, up to the moment. It's, it's difficult to always know what to do. Joseph knew exactly what to do because the word to him was giving him clear direction to go to Egypt. Probably went down to Alexandria. There were a million Jews there. He, they would have blended it as a family in that culture and been completely safe in a Jewish culture that had colonized down in Egypt. And so they were comfortably there, but not there for long. And it says right in verse 13 that the angel said, go down there until I tell you to return. And so Joseph knew that it was temporary. They perhaps financed that trip with the gold that had been given to them by the Magi, don't know, but they're comfortably down there and they're avoiding the direct assault from Herod. Now, this leads us to the third form of persecution where um, we left off last time. And this is the form of persecution called carnage. Carnage. We've had conspiracy, we've had a coercion, and now carnage. This is when persecution moves from soft coercion or hard coercion, where you are moving and, and figuring out exactly what to do, what not to do, what is a genuine assault against Christ, what is just part of our culture, and, and we're dealing with things in wisdom as a church. All of that category is live and is real and dynamic, but things become really clear in terms of Christian persecution when someone is physically harmed for Christ or physically incarcerated for Christ, taken to jail for Christ. This is the, on, the goings-on of the New Testament. You see this in the book of Acts over and over where Missionary journeys led the missionaries right into prison, into jail. And you had different forms of persecution where Paul was beaten on his back for the sake of Christ with baseball bat rods, Paul and Silas singing hymns in the Philippian jail, and then the doors fly open and they are able to leave at that point, but not before they were beaten and first incarcerated. You have to understand, it wasn't just some sort of romantic story or experience for Paul. He was beaten nearly to death, whipped um, 39 times, 40 lashes, usually meant certain death. And so it's, they would bring him up to the point of near death and then let him live. That was his Christian experience. And half of what um, we have in the New Testament is from what are called the prison Epistles. This is where he's writing from Roman imprisonment under, under um, shackles and chains to the Praetorian Guard. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So this is the story of the church, but it also was happening so early. And we find this in this third stage of persecution, verses 16 through 18, says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men, 
Let's stop there in verse 16. Herod realized he had been outwitted by the wise men. From his perspective, the wise men had duped him, had tricked him. The wise men were just following the Lord. The wise men had received a direct revelation from the Lord through their dream, verse 12, where no doubt another angelic messenger had told them directly to depart, to go their own way, and they took a safe route away from harm's way. But Herod took this personally. The secrecy and the secret meetings and the threats of Herod now were turning into rage and in terms of him becoming militant to destroy two-year-old boys and younger in Bethlehem. Bethlehem, which was five miles away from Jerusalem, meaning that the wise men had traveled in a day's journey, had immediately found the house where Christ was because God supernaturally showed them where to go. So they're worshiping him within one day. And then that night they're dreaming, they're receiving a dream revelation from the Lord to leave and they leave. So this is all happening within a 24 hour period where Herod is finding out that the wise men weren't returning. He's waiting Um, patiently or impatiently for them to return. And so he says, enough is enough. I'm going to now just slaughter children that are two years or younger, boys that are two years and younger. Probably Bethlehem was population 1,000, not a large population, small population. This would be like a high school football stadium full of people gathered and within that crowd you can count the number of babies that that would represent and the number of baby boys that that would represent. Perhaps you had 10, maybe 20 at max baby boys that were candidates to be killed, to be ripped from their mother's arms and slaughtered. I just want to give you that measurement so that you understand that Herod had very uh, deliberately wanted to protect his own political status. He wanted just to kill Christ, but he had to widen the circle to kill a few more boys to ensure that he would be king. Killing any child is terrible. Murdering a child is awful. If you cause one little child to stumble better they be thrown into the lake with or a sea with a, a millstone tied around their neck. So Jesus loves his little ones. And these little ones were killed in one real sense for the sake of Christ. Christ escaped and they took the slaughter. Herod's rage took over. This would be different than the slaughter of the Jewish boys that were born in the days of um, Pharaoh in Egypt. Exodus chapter 1, verse 21. Every son born to the Hebrews shall be cast into the Nile. That was happening. You had midwives who were coming to the rescue of these boys and hiding them and covering for them. But many boys were killed and many more boys were killed in that instance than this. But one child's death is too many. One child's murder is too many. This is homicidal Herod. He views the magicians as double agents and becomes 
furious. The word here for anger or furious is from the Greek word thumos, ethumone, which is rage. And he initiates the nuclear plan to kill. He had had a military career where I had said before he killed people. He would wipe out cultures. He wiped out the Hasmoneans, which his wife at the time, uh, Miriamne, was the last Hasmonean. And that was a Jewish sect that he saw as a threat to the Greco-Roman Empire. And so he just slaughtered all of them. Well, don't know how many thousands. He just would kill almost whimsically. Murder was in his DNA. And so for him to commit infanticide here should not be a surprise. It's why all of Jerusalem was very, very nervous and troubled, it says earlier in the text. They were troubled, verse 3, all in Jerusalem because of what Herod might do. He had made this plan. He had ascertained to do this plan of killing two years old and younger, verse 16 says. So why is this so horrible? Why is killing children horrible? I just want to pick it up. I mean, is this just a problem that was happening in the New Testament? Well, in third world countries, there are tribes that go against each other that commit genocide to wipe out cultures like this. This kind of demonic, Satan-inspired killing killing and murder and carnage is real in our world today, not just against the church, but against the image of God in general. You say, is that a third world problem or does that reach our culture here? And you know the obvious answer is the abortion rage that goes on, kills people of all races, of all backgrounds, and even of all belief systems. These babies in those families are ripped from mother's wombs and slaughtered. The slaughtering takes place all of the time. I just looked up on the World Health Organization website. It says that every year, 40 to 50 million abortions occur. This corresponds to approximately 125,000 abortions per day. On one website, it just, it just, it's got just a number countdown where it's counting, not countdown, it's, it's counting forward every abortion that's happening. It's just almost sequenced within seconds. Abortions are happening all the time. In the U.S. alone, half of the pregnancies are unintended. Four in ten of these are terminated by abortion. And there are over 3,000 abortions in our country per day. So children, babies. Our culture speaks of caring for one another and loving your neighbor. Well, what about these neighbors? These are lives. These are those who are created in the image of God, and they're dying. It's carnage. It's carnage. And it's against the Lord because he's made these little ones. He invites each one of these babies who die in the womb die in infancy or die immediately out of the womb through strangulation or whatever, they immediately go to heaven. They're the Lord's little ones. They're the ones he invites into his lap and blesses and says, such is the kingdom of God for these. These Bethlehemite mothers, mothers of Bethlehem, suffered incomprehensible pain Indirectly for the sake of Christ. What did this pain look like? Well, look down in the text. 
Verse 17, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Rachel is uh, portrayed as weeping for the sake of these children who've been slaughtered. Rachel was uh, married to Jacob and was was killed and, and buried in the region of Ramah, which you have Betham that's five miles due south of Jerusalem, Ramah, which is five miles due northeast of Jerusalem. That area was where Rachel, when she died pre-exile, during the time of the kings, she dies and she is buried there. That's where her grave is. And it says in 1 Samuel 10.2, Rachel's tomb is located there in the territory of Benjamin, Zeltza. It's, uh, that's where she was in Ramah. So the picture here in this text is that you have Rachel weeping from the grave for the sake of those whom are lost. That's the picture. That's what Matthew is doing. He's tying together biblical history. The text in, um, that's quoted here from Jeremiah is speaking in terms of the time of exile or deportation of the Jews 500 years earlier. It's interesting to text to tie together history in that way. You have the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C., almost, almost a millennia before Christ. 722 B.C., the northern kingdom was taken away into exile for disobedience and for idolatry by the Assyrians. Well, later on, in 5, as you're counting down to the birth of Christ in 586 B.C., you have what's called the Babylonian captivity, which we've talked about, where Nebuchadnezzar came and swept in and, and wrested away Daniel and, and all of uh, those disobedient southern kingdom Israelites who were taken to Babylon in captivity. Well, on the way to their being exiled... There was a deportation station, what I'm calling an internment camp or a, a prison camp that was set up in Ramah, five miles northeast of Jerusalem, this prison camp where all these Israelites are sitting there. They've, they've been caught up short by the Lord. They've, they've forsaken God as a culture. They've gone away from the Lord. They're disobeying the law and suddenly they're looking at each other in Ramah in this camp and they're saying, we're getting ready to be sent off into exile. We're in the prison camp. We're in this Auschwitz environment getting ready to be taken away to Nebuchadnezzar for the rest of our lives. Until death, because of our disobedience, they're caught by the Lord, and the Lord has commissioned Babylonians to do this to disobedient Israel. That's what Jeremiah is originally talking about here. That's where Rachel, as a matriarch of Israel, as a mother figure of Israel, had been born, I mean, had been buried. And so her being buried there is symbolically tied to the tragedy of, of the Israelites that are going to be deported away. And the picture is she's weeping over them. She's heartbroken over them. In Jeremiah 41 and 2, the scene is Jeremiah the prophet being taken in chains to this 
moment in Ramah, it says the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after the Nebuzardian, the captain of the guard, this figure, this captain figure on behalf of Nebuchadnezzar, it says they let Jeremiah, they let him go from Ramah. In other words, when they took him, the verse says, bound in chains along with all the captives of Jerusalem. So you have you have Jeremiah, he's in chains under the Nebuzardan um, captain of the guard and Jeremiah is there, he's with these people that are getting ready to be deported off into Babylonian captivity forever until they die, going away from God's people, away from their home. He's bound in chains and it says, along with all the captains of Jer- captives of Jerusalem and Judah, we're being exiled to Babylon. And listen to what the captain, this Nebuzardan says, verse two, the captain of the guard took Jeremiah and said to him, the Lord your God pronounced this disaster against this place. That's sadness. That's sadness. That's weeping. That's difficulty. And that's what Matthew, he ties in this story to say, this, is, this was prophetic of what's happening now to these babies. This is a fulfillment, a picture fulfillment or typology, typological fulfillment of what happened then is happening now in this persecution. William Barclay said this, he said he was tying together sadness relating to Christ, saying that killing others is part of this plan to discourage people for the mission of God. When people are killed for Christ, when carnage is happening, it's the plan of Satan is to suck the lifeblood or the motivation out of the mission. He says, here is a terrible illustration of what men will do to get rid of Jesus Christ. Speaking of the babies who died. In Bethlehem, if a man is set on his own way, if he sees in Christ someone who is liable to interfere with his ambitions and rebuke his ways, his one desire is to eliminate Christ. And then he is driven to the most terrible things. For if he does not break men's bodies, he will break their hearts. It's heartbreaking. Carnage is heartbreaking. This leads us to our final point. Consequences. We've talked about conspiracy, carnage, and now consequences. And this is the worst stage of all. This is the nuclear fallout stage of persecution. There's conspiring, there's coercion where people are needing to move around, be dispersed, be strategic, and then people are being killed or incarcerated. Then there is consequences. It's the new land that your landscape that you're living in. What does that look like? Well, listen as I read verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. He rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. Israel. Let's stop there. This is the fallout. Joseph now is um, experiencing the third 
dream, the third, and then he'll experience the fourth dream. But he has a third dream that is the angel fulfilling his promise to say, I'm going to tell you when to leave Egypt. You've gone there. Now go back to your hometown. Go back to Israel. That's where Joseph's from. Go back there. It's time, you know, rise up, be obedient. And Joseph is always ready. He's always proactive. He's always viewed as leading and and taking his family back. And this is one of the more and we have a later window as parents that we're going to talk about where Joseph is mentioned. But this is sort of his last moment where he's doing his thing and following the Lord. And we have a sense of finality in this vision. It says Herod died, verse 19. The angel is informing him. Herod is dead. His cohort, his army initiative, his militant initiative is over. The threat level is taken back down. It's not red hot anymore. You might be in an orange phase right now or perhaps even a blue phase. He is dead. Josephus from the church historian from the early, you know, hundreds AD wrote in his book Antiquities about Herod's death. He said he died of this, Herod died of this, ulcerated entrails, putrefied and maggot-filled organs, constant convulsions, foul breath, and neither physicians nor warm baths could let him recover. So he died a gruesome death, a fitting death. And Matthew is writing that Joseph had another intervention dream. Go home. Behold, an angel of the Lord. Look up, people. Look up, readers. There's another intervention moment. I don't think Jesus had been there very long in Egypt. He was probably a young boy at this point. There's a scene that's coming up where Jesus will be in the temple at age 12, and he's confounding the teachers of the law. So he's still growing up phase, and probably he was still a young boy Um, when he's coming back to Jerusalem. God was leading Joseph every step of the way, giving, preserving guidance, saying the bloodthirsty threat is off. But it doesn't stop there. There is God's revelation and what God tells us directly to do, and then there is human responsibility to be wise with what exactly you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to apply God's revelation. It's always that way. It's God's sovereignty, God's word, God's will, and human responsibility, thinking, discerning, figuring it out. And this is very difficult work. It's always difficult to do. Why do we do what we do? What is actually happening to us? What is Christian persecution? What is not Christian persecution? What is an ideology that is Satan-inspired to hurt us, hurt us culturally, to confuse us regarding truth? This is difficult work, and there's a little window into this difficulty with Joseph. Notice down in the text again, it says he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel and went to his hometown, verse 22. But when he heard of Archelaus, that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. Stop there. He was afraid. Joseph was phobos is the Greek word. He had a phobia. He had a dreadful fear rising in his heart and he didn't want to go to where Archelaus was. 
Who's Archelaus? That will explain everything. Why was he afraid of Archelaus? Well, Archelaus was one of Herod the Great's three sons. Now, he, Herod the Great, we know, killed off several of his kids. But three are here before us in the history books, and they, they show up in the Gospels. The three are Herod Archelaus, Herod Philip, and Herod Antipas. You have Herod Archelaus, who is in the southern area of Israel. He's a tetrarch or a leader, just like Herod the Great, but he's subdivided into the southern region, Judea, Samaria, and Idumea. Then you have Herod Philip, who's in the far northern region of Israel, and this is north of Galilee, Herod Philip II. He's mentioned in Luke chapter 3, verse 1. And then you have Herod Antipas, who's right in the middle area in Galilee, 55 miles or so due north of Jerusalem. So you have Jerusalem, you have Archelaus, you have Galilee, which is where Nazareth is, that's Herod Antipas, and then you have Philip, who's in the far northern region. And the idea is that Herod the Great on his deathbed, as he's convulsing and dying, he's going, uh, men, come in, we need to change my will because I'm checking out and I'm getting ready to die, and I know my three boys and they can't handle the power that was given to me. I had control over it all, it's subdivided out in the will right now. Let's put one son here, one son here, and one son here. We'll put Archelaus in the bottom because he's the power son. We'll put Antipas in the middle because he's sort of my passive, sort of, uh, you know, easier going son. And then we'll put Philip um, way out there. So he's out of harm's way and we'll put him up there. And so you have three different Herods that are tetrarchs. I think it was Julius Caesar who named, it might've been Caesar Augustus who named, uh, it was Archelaus a um, ethnarch. So out of the three tetrarchs who are spaced equally in their power, you have one who is leaning out, who has a little bit more power. He's the ethnarch. He's the one whose job it is to lose, to sort of follow in the footsteps of Herod the Great and be strong as Herod and be considered ethnically as strong as someone who would be the true king of the Jews, ethnarch, like ethnicity. So so what happened with Archelaus? Out, uh, Archelaus basically tried to out-Herod Herod, and he, the power went to his head. Imagine that. He was, uh, had this sort of complex where he wanted to be as strong as his dad, so he wiped out 3,000 significant people in his area right away. Political leaders just wiped him out, and the power went to his head. He had drunk the heady wine of power and ultimately disqualified himself where Rome ended up banishing him from governance. And who did they appoint in Archelaus's place? Someone you've heard of, Pontius Pilate, Governor Pilate which we'll pick up in the story with Christ and his ministry when Christ is ministering as a 30-something-year-old and will ultimately come under direct assault, laying in the hands of Pontius Pilate in terms of his crucifixion. Well, Joseph, uh, he didn't know all the politics of what was going on and that transition between Archelaus and Pontius Pilate, how all that exactly happened and when, um, is kind of immaterial to Joseph's decision because Archelaus is in power and he is a threat level red to Christ. And so instead of going there, he in fear pauses and then the fourth dream takes place where the angel of the Lord speaks again. Verse 22, second part, it says, and being warned in a dream 
he, Joseph, withdrew to the district of Galilee. What did Joseph do? Well, he, he discerned the moment, threat level too high with Archelaus, seeking the Lord for wisdom where to go. God speaks and says, go to Galilee. Why was Jesus raised a Nazarene? Why was he in Galilee? Because God put him there. God put him there. I was uh, born in Wilmington, Delaware. I sort of forget that sometimes because I was only there, I guess, apparently three months. A little baby, born above, you know, the basically, you know, in the culture of our country there, above Virginia, but then raised a Virginian, raised in Chesapeake, Virginia, and then Virginia Beach. And that's where I mark my childhood days, and that's how I know myself. When people say, where were you raised? Uh, I was raised in Virginia. I was raised in that area, the Norfolk, Chesapeake, Virginia Beach, Hampton Roads area. That's where I'm from. I don't think of myself as being from Wilmington unless I look at my birth certificate. That's Jesus. He was a Nazarene. That's where he grew up as a little boy. That's where he had his experiences. He probably in that little town of Nazareth, which was not big, Galilee would have been the city and Nazareth would have been the little suburbized area. He would have climbed little um, foothills of Galilee and looked out to the west and seen in the Mediterranean Sea a massive trade route of ships and commerce. And then he would have looked along the mountainside of the little trail road that was a um, road that would, was called um, Damascus, the Damascus Road. And that little Damascus Road was a trade route on land all the way down into Egypt and northern Africa. It was one of the most profound trade routes in the known world during that time. And Jesus may have seen many important people pass by from his little outpost in Nazareth, the no-name place. Remember Philip, when Jesus was um, being observed as, uh, as the Messiah, he said, can anything good come from Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Well, that's because that place was a podunk place. It was Innsville, as somebody put it. It was a nowhere place. That's where Jesus was from, from a nowhere land. There, you know, that's why Isaiah 53 says um, that he had no stately form of majesty. He had no clout and no um, sort of political credibility because he was from the district. It says in verse to the district of Galilee. He was a Nazarene. But I want to say this, and I think this is an important concept not to miss. This is what really I got from this text. Um, Though the angel took Joseph and Mary outside of the persecution of Archelaus, He was still put into a hostile environment under Antipas. Though we are to not seek persecution and seek to be persecuted, we we still are not given entitlement to not be persecuted. We should not believe that we should not undergo persecution in this life. I think sometimes as Christians, we believe we are not supposed or we are exempted from persecution. Persecution, And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 7 that we are called to remain in the situation that we find ourselves in when we are saved. 1 Corinthians 7, 27. Joseph would have preferred to live in his hometown, but he ultimately grew up 
or raised Jesus in Nazareth. Jesus grew in wisdom and strength and favor with God and man. You remember Mary and Joseph had gone down to basically Jesus bar mitzvah. They, they were, he was 12 or around that age and down there um, to celebrate Passover and Jesus was found later in the temple. The, the parents were feverishly looking for him, could not find him and they found him and he had grown in these ways. And these are the years where the threat level was probably more like a blue threat level <laughs> in terms of fire danger for Christ and Christ was able to grow up, but there was always a sense of persecution. Antipas was dangerous in Galilee. He is the one who ultimately listened to his wife Herodias and beheaded John the Baptist. Antipas was passive and aggressive. He was passive, though. Remember, his, Herodias was his wife, and his wife was um, formerly the wife of Philip, not the Tetrarch Philip, but another brother who was Philip. And so there was an incestuous marriage and relationship where Herod Antipas had married Herodias and Herodias manipulated Antipas to kill John the Baptist. To ask the, they asked his, she asked his daughter to say, give me John the Baptist's head on a platter. And that was all because of preaching accountability and it was persecution. This is a threatening man. Well, Jesus grew up in that. The environment today is a smoldering one. Are we in this stage of carnage? Are we in this stage of aftermath? Probably not. We're experiencing levels of coercion. We're experiencing levels of conspiracy against Christ. We're trying to discern exactly what's going on. But let's not fall prey to the temptation to believe that we should be exempted from Christian persecution. This is Christianity. Trials are what make us stronger for Christ. Trials are what make us stand up for Christ. Persecution causes the church to rise and not be defeated and prove out that it cannot be defeated no matter what phase of persecution it undergoes. Let's stand for Christ. Let's gather this evening in worship. Let's stand for Christ. Let's sing for Christ. Let's give all glory to Christ.